Hey guys, Eric Lindine here. I'm the lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you, and that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Awesome, I love it. Um, we are in the series called Rescue is Coming. We've been journeying with Abraham now for quite a few uh, months as we've just gotten to know his story and walk through him. And this is our last week really with him. Uh, and then next Sunday we'll be talking about Easter and all that. But I was thinking about that, like the difference between, uh, you know, cartoon characters like Disney characters and these people in the Bible. And we need to make sure that we don't confuse those two things. I think that's why sometimes um, at churches, you know, they have the Easter Bunny show up, and that's okay. I'm not ragging on them, but are we equating then the Easter Bunny with Jesus and these characters? And we're doing an Easter egg hunt. The Easter Bunny's not bringing those Easter eggs. We're bringing those Easter eggs, right? Um, but there's some stuff in here where it can be easy to say, well, is this, are these just stories like Mulan or Aladdin or these different stories we, we, we come to know and love, right? That, well, they didn't really happen. Well, we believe that these stories really did happen, that Abraham really did live, and that this book tells the story about his messed up family. And the reason, one of the reasons I believe this really did happen, it's really true, is we've been talking about how messed up their family is. Abraham, that he, he, he messes up again and again, and he, he's passive when he should be active, and, and, and he's lying, and he's cheating, these different things, right? If you were going to make up stories uh, about a faith that you were starting, you would want to only tell good stories, right? That's why we mostly only have good stories about our founding fathers here in America, because we want to tell a good myth about them. We don't want to tell the ugly warts and all, but in these stories, we actually have all their, their weaknesses and their mistakes and, and all those things. And there's some stuff in here that can be a little awkward to talk about, right? And I'm not just talking about people will say, well, how can you believe this stuff, Eric? You know, that uh, a giant fish really swallowed a person or that God spoke through a burning bush or, you know, all these stories that I believe are true. But, but yeah, again, we have the good and the bad and all these things. Today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to see a story that honestly is kind of hard to wrestle with. And this is one that's easy just to skip or I think to come to incorrect conclusions about the reason this story is in the Bible. And this is one of those stories, again, that it's like, what do we do with this? What do we do even with the idea we're going to talk about it on Sunday, that Jesus had to die for us. What does that even really mean? Is that an outdated idea that we should just really kind of throw aside and say, uh, the cross is more about just how far Jesus was willing to go for us. Let's not talk about substitutionary atonement, a big fancy word, uh, that Jesus, he had to die for us? I don't know if I like that. So, Today, I want to do my best to explore why I think this story is in here and the tension that I think we're going to feel, and I hope that we will feel kind of the tension of this story, that it's, it, it, it is awkward. 
Uh, and so what is God trying to tell us in this story? If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be diving into there. Uh, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, thank you again that you are here in this place. Thank you that you're with us, um, that you're with Rachel and Mary as, as, as we're, we're praying for Mary to re- regain health. God, thank you that um, uh, you're, you're in this building, those who are watching online, those who couldn't make it tonight. God, as, as we open your word, as we explore this story and just the complexities of it, God, I pray that our eyes would just see a clearer picture of who you are. Yeah, and we pray, amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we've been journeying with Abraham uh, for the last several months. And Abraham, again, he grew up in Babylon, like kind of in the east. He's a pagan man living in a pagan land, doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have a Christian family, any of that stuff. And God says, go. And he does go. He leaves his land, his nation, his family, his community. And then God enters into this covenant relationship with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to others. So it's not just Abraham to receive this blessing. He's hey, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to others. And then through you, eventually, the whole world is going to be blessed. Through you, eventually. And so we've been journeying with him in this text. It's about 25 years from the time he, he left his home and his family. And now, last week, we finally saw the fulfillment that he finally got his son. And, and, and 25 years he's been waiting for this promised son to come, and Isaac is finally born. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's always a delay on the way to your destiny. There's always this time of waiting between God promises you something and when you step into that destiny. And how you deal with delay is gonna determine how you experience your destiny. Are you gonna be impatient and, 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 and you're not trusting God? Are you gonna be angry? Are you gonna be focusing on that thing that God spoke to you about? at the detriment of looking around at all the other things that God is doing in your life? Or are you going to have patience and wait for that thing that God has spoken to you and you believe in it and and, and you're going to focus on him? So how we we deal with delay is going to determine really our experience in life. But now for Abraham, 25 years later, Finally, life is coming together in a remarkable way. Again, we believe Moses wrote down this story after he led the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he's telling the Israelites the story of how they came to be. It's a very important story. And he's a great storyteller. So he's been kind of telling the ups and downs of Abraham's life. And this is kind of like the deep breath after all the drama in his life. We see Abraham, he's a wealthy man. His business is going great. He finally has his son. He's got a great relationship with his community. He's in a covenant relationship with King Abimelech as well as with his God. Everything is going great. There's peace and calm and joy. And uh, finally, he got rid of his girlfriend uh, and you know, Isaac's half-brother. Last week, we saw that. And God's going to take care of them. And there's kind of shalom, right, in his life, kind of peace. But now the author of Genesis is kind of jolt us out of this. This kind of Norman Rockwell setting is going to be interrupted. It's going to be shattered. And we're going to kind of look at this story in three distinct parts. And the first one is the call of a disciple. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The call of a disciple. We're talking about that word disciple. One of Jesus' last words was go and make disciples. What does that mean? It's a Talmudim. It's, it's, it's more along the idea of someone who apprentices to someone else. 
So when, when, when you're a craftsman and you apprentice under someone, that's what a disciple is. It's saying, I'm going to orient my whole life around my teacher, my master, and say, I want to be your Talmudim. I want to be your disciple. All right, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Abraham has got to the point where he's just very open. He's listening to God. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right. Hopefully this should like send off tons of red flags, right? Why is God asking him to take his one and only son and sacrifice him to murder his only son? What is going on here? This is awkward. This is not something God asks people to do as human sacrifice. So what is going on here? That, we're going to live with this tension a little bit here. But first, we're going to see that God tested Abraham. And here's the thing. God does test us. If you're taking notes, write this down, that testing is different than temptation. God allows us to go through some things or might even put us in situations to see how we're going to respond. God never tempts us, but sometimes God tests us. There's a very big difference between temptation and testing. So God is testing Abraham to kind of see, hey, how's your heart? Where's your faith in me? He's saying, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son. He can say this a couple times to really deepen this tension. He's not saying just to rub it in, but Ishmael, his other son, is gone. He's been cast out. Isaac is his only son. It's his only hope. Isaac really had become Abraham's emotional center. And he said, go to Moriah. Moriah is the site where the temple eventually is going to be built. Eventually where they're going to offer sacrifices, that's where Moriah is. There's some definite foreshadowing here going on. And God says, go. I'll tell you where to go exactly, but go to this mountain and I'll tell you exactly where to go. And this kind of echoes Abraham's call in Genesis 12. When he called him out of Babylon, he said, go. And Abraham wasn't sure exactly where he was going to go. Sometimes God will call us out of something and just say, go. And we're not sure exactly where that thing is that he's calling us to, but he wants us to take that first step of obedience first to see, are we going to obey him? And he's not going to lay out all the details, all the plans. We said, just go. And not just go someplace, but offer something, the thing you love the most, and sacrifice to God. Now, God is asking him to murder his son. This is so out of character for God. This doesn't happen any other time in Scripture. What is going on here? He says, take the life of your one and only son that you've waited 25 years for. I'm a dad of four kids, and I got to admit, the biggest nightmare to me is having to preach the funeral of one of my kids. And now God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. I honestly can't imagine anything more horrifying for God to ask me to do than to kill one of my children. And how does Abraham respond? Well, he's been called by God, and the call is a call of obedience. Here's how the Apostle Paul writes it in Romans chapter 8. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. It's a legal term. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the thing, is that when, when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus, it's because he first calls out to us. I believe it's Augustine says, I would not have called out to you if you had first not called out to me. And, and, and we see that the Holy Spirit draws us to him, that he's calling us to him. And not only that, the calling happens throughout our life, continually calling to Jesus. When Jesus showed up as a teacher, as a rabbi, in that culture in the first century in Palestine, there were many rabbis, many teachers. And what they would do is they'd walk around and they'd find a limited number of students they had. They only had so much time, so much energy to invest in students. And so they wanted to find the best of the best of the best so they could reproduce themselves into these certain students. And so they would call and say, hey, would you come and follow me and be my apprentice and learn from me? Because I think you have what it takes to be like me. So when Jesus, he comes and he calls these fishermen, who've been passed over by every other teacher because they're not good enough. That's why they immediately left their nets. And the dad who's fishing with them, the dad of Andrew, uh, uh, Peter and John, he's like, go, this is a great calling. And today, now, Jesus calls each and every one of us and says, hey, I think you can be like me. And Jesus, I believe right now, is calling us to him. And perhaps right now, you're even sensing that calling. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning. And I love this. Abraham doesn't delay. He, first thing in the morning, he, he doesn't sleep in. If you're taking notes, that delayed obedience is disobedience. I think sometimes we believe God asks us to do something, and what's our response? I don't know about that. And so we put it off, right? But delayed obedience, we tell our kids, is disobedience. So Abraham, he doesn't do that. He says, go, and early in the morning, he's going to go. He doesn't put off what God clearly calls him to do. Maybe even right now, there's something God's clearly commanded and you're putting it off. On Wednesday night, I was preaching to a bunch of high school kids. I was talking about baptism, that step of faith, of identifying with Jesus. And I said, we can't procrastinate what Jesus clearly commands us to do, which is to take that step of faith and be baptized. So maybe there's something you're wrestling with and you're not sure. I want to encourage you, don't delay what you believe Jesus is speaking to you right now. And I love this. Abraham doesn't argue with God. We don't really know what he's thinking or feeling. And I think it's so interesting because today, so often, we are so concerned, I think, with our feelings and these things. And like, oh, I have an unsettled spirit about this. So should I do this? Should I not? But here's the thing. Faith is not what you feel. Faith is what you do. Faith isn't what you feel. Faith is what you do. You don't have a strong faith because the music swells and you feel God in the presence of worship. You have a great relationship with Jesus and a good, strong faith when you actually do what he asks you to do. Faith isn't about your feelings, it's about what you do. Verse three through four. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, you can underline that in your Bible if you want. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. They're going to go on about a 50-mile journey here. They cover about 50 miles in three days, so they're making a pretty good progress. But dad's in the room. Can you imagine what this journey was like? 
I want you to really put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You're riding side by side. You're talking at night. You're talking around the campfire. You know, uh, Isaac is a teenage boy now. He's sharing his hopes and dreams. Maybe he's talking about wanting to get married someday. He wanted to be a dad. He wants to give, you know, his dad, Abraham, grandkids someday. Isaac doesn't know they're heading to the place where Abraham's supposed to murder him. Feel that weight. Three days of camping, of talking, of being at the fire. And the whole time, Abraham's feeling this weight. I'm just speculating, but at any point did Abraham think, I need to turn back. This is too much. God, why are you asking me to do this? Verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He's like, you guys stay here. We're gonna go worship. And what is worship? You can write this down. Worship is submitting to God and then offering our first fruits to God. It's saying, God, I submit to you, not what I want, but what you want. And I'm gonna offer what's most valuable, important and give it over to you. That's what Abraham's gonna do here, that worship is sacrifice. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. I picture Isaac, young teenage boy. He's like, yeah, dad, dad's old. He's 100 and some, 115 years old at this point, you know. He's like, load me up. I can carry this load, right? I'll carry the wood. And Isaac's gonna carry the wood that he's gonna be laid upon as a sacrifice. Again, this is pointing to the future when God's only son is going to carry the wooden cross that he'll be laid upon as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse six, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I was like, Dad, I know you're getting a little old, and we've had a lot of fun traveling and, and camping, and I'm excited to worship with you. And you've told me we're going to this mountain to worship, but I think you forgot something. We've got the fire, we've got the wood, I got the knife. But where is the lamb? Isaac knows there must be a lamb. So where is the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Isaac had to be a fully submissive son in this moment. Again, Isaac's somewhere between 13 and 16 years old. His dad's somewhere between 115 years old or so. Uh, Isaac could totally take his old man. I know Abraham was a tough old guy. But Isaac really is submitting to the will of his father. I think there's a lot of trust here between father and son. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The story's in here. What do we do with this? Hand is cocked back. He's hoping to make it as painless as possible. I think tears streaming down his face. Abraham looks at Isaac in his eyes and he says, I love you, son. How can Abraham even do this? Well, the second part of writing this down is the horror of the test. Of the call of the disciple, the horror of the test. Because here's the big question. Why would God do this to Abraham? It seems exceedingly cruel. Here's the thing. If this story is supposed to only tell us to submit to God and 
mirror the obedience of Abraham, then we have a major problem. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this story terrified him. He was worried that someone would hear this story preached and then go home and do it. So none of you, don't do this at home, okay? He says the inspirational approach doesn't get to the heart of this story. This isn't a story meant to inspire people to trust God. If that's your takeaway, then we have not grasped the true horror of the test. See, God doesn't just ask Abraham to murder his son. He asks him to make him a sacrifice. And to understand that, we have to get a little culturally into the meaning of the firstborn. Again, we live in a Western individualistic culture, and we read our Bible through that lens. But it's really good to remember the people in the Bible did not live in a culture like ours. They lived in an honor-based, honor and shame-based culture. They were not individualistic like we are here in the West. In the East, in this culture, they didn't have personal hopes and dreams. The hopes and dreams were for the family's success. And because of that, the firstborn got all the marbles, all the inheritance. Here's why. Again, in this culture, each family had a limited amount of land and wealth or whatever. I have four kids. So if you divide up your wealth into four equal parts, then the standing of that family would go down, right? You're gonna, it's going to get watered down, watered down. And so instead, the oldest would inherit everything, and then his responsibility is to take care of all his siblings and his parents. This is called the law of primogeniture, law of primogeniture. We see this in Genesis. God is constantly, though, underlining, undermining the law of primogeniture. See, God chose Abel, not Cain. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And even you go forward, and it's like, who's the most famous son of, of Jacob? It's Joseph, right? The dreamer, Technicolor Dreamcoat. Clearly, God's going to pick Joseph to be the one that Jesus is going to come through. No, he picks Judah. Not even Joseph, not the oldest, not the youngest, this random son in the middle. God is constantly picking the son we don't think he's going to pick. And so that's super important for us to understand. We talk about this in Genesis. You can see the, the big picture of kind of creation. God creates it good to be in And then curse comes in and wrecks it all. And now covenant is the way that God deals with curse. But because of the curse, each family has a sin debt to pay. If you're taking notes, write this down, that our sin debt is bigger and uglier than we could possibly imagine. A terrible debt requires a tremendous sacrifice. So I think too often we we lose sight of, 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 of the true terrible debt that we owe God because of our sin. Because of the debt each family owns, owes, God would say, okay, the firstborn of your family belongs to me. We see this in the story of the Passover, uh, that God's people are enslaved. He says, the firstborn's life is forfeit unless a lamb is killed. You paint the blood on the doorpost. Then the life of the firstborn is given back to you. And so God is saying there is a debt of sin owed by every family. See, if God would have told Abraham, kill your wife as an act of sacrifice, Abraham would be like, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. But Abraham knows he owes a debt to God, and that payment is the firstborn son. Abraham understands what God is asking him to do to sacrifice his firstborn son. He understands that God is a God of justice and that all humans fail to measure up to that perfect standard. And in a family-oriented, not individualistic culture, the life of the firstborn child is forfeit. So God is calling in his debt here. Was Abraham being torn apart by this? By what God is asking him to do? Yes. 
Was he in great torment? Yes. See, the horror was this, that the command of God apparently contradicts the promises of God. God is commanding him to sacrifice what he loves the most, but it's contradicting the promise that all the world's going to be blessed through this child. How is that going to work out? There's a debt to be paid, but the blessing is supposed to come from Isaac. So how is it going to work out? How can a God of justice also be a God who says that all the world is going to be blessed through Isaac? See, this narrative is much about much more than child sacrifice. It's how can a gracious God also be holy? How can God be both just and justifier? What is the answer? It's the wonder of the Lamb. The wonder of the Lamb. The peak of this action now, Moses has been kind of telling the story, and it's moved pretty quickly, but now he's going to slow it way down. He's a very good storyteller. Let's go back to verse 7. This is one of the only recorded conversations between Isaac and Abraham. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said to him, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What gives Abraham the faith to walk up that mountain? It's a faith that believes God will provide the lamb. And the literal translation for provide means to see to. God will see to it. Maybe tonight there's something you need to trust in God for. And you need to believe that God's going to see to it. That thing you are looking for, the thing you're asking for, God's going to see to it. Abraham is thinking, I don't see it, but I know that God does. I don't, I don't see how God can be both holy and gracious. How's he going to have this, this debt of sin paid and the promise of a blessing of the world through Isaac? I don't understand, but he trusts God. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 11, verse 17. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, here in the story, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, He's willing to offer him, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. What? A couple chapters ago, when, when, when God told Abraham that he was going to be a father, what did God tell him? 18 verse 14, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And so Abraham believes, okay, I can sacrifice my son and you know what? God is able to raise him from the dead. And so he, he, he's ready. He's got the knife cock. He's believing, okay, I guess I'm going to kill my son and God's going to raise him up. Man, Abraham's a much better man than I am. I could not go there. So we're at this place of desperation, right? Abraham's asked to sacrifice what he loves most, but in faith he's believing that God could even raise him up. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord, oh, come on. That's good, right? We talk about this. Who's the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. Before he came, was born of a virgin. The pre incarnate Jesus shows up. Man, we desperately need a hero in this story, right? Things are feeling desperate. And maybe your story's like this, that you desperately need a hero. That's when Jesus comes in to rescue us. That is good news. That a rescue is coming, that when things seem most desperate, that's when Jesus shows up. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. Okay, wait a minute. We've been talking. There needs to be a lamb for a sacrifice. Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. We've been looking for the lamb. I may be splitting hairs here, but it is two different Hebrew words. Why does a ram show up and not the lamb? The lamb's going to show up on Friday. This shows us that ram couldn't pay the ultimate price. Just like Isaac couldn't pay the ultimate price for the debt that we owe. Only the true spotless lamb of God could truly pay the price for our sins. Again, this is the big fancy word, substitutionary atonement. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to paying off the debt that we owe. It's a terrible, horrendous, awful debt. And only the true, spotless, perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, could step into our place. And again, for us modernists, we can sound like, ah, oh, this sounds like child abuse or sacrifice. But the most important question we need to ask is who is Jesus and what did he accomplish on the cross? Did he go to the cross just to show us how much he loved us, that he's willing to die a death and be killed by the Romans? Or did he actually accomplish something on that cross? See, Jesus goes to the cross as a substitute for you and me. We give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness, his resume. It sounds like a pretty bad deal for Jesus, but that's the economy of heaven and the foolishness of the cross. This is so incredibly important. Without this, we don't have good news. Without the death of Jesus, we have no forgiveness of sins. The most important thing is that Jesus died for our sins and then he rose again. That's why Good Friday is so important. That's why we celebrate the cross and we remember what Jesus did on that, that he died on it for us, that he accomplished something truly on that cross, that he paid the price we should have paid, and then he rose again on Easter Sunday. Verse 13, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Here's the thing again. If the story is just about, hey, be like Abraham, be obedient, follow in his footsteps, try to be like him, the mountain should have been called obedience. What is it called? The Lord will provide. It's not about obedience of Abraham. It's not about your obedience. It's not about trying to be like Abraham. The story is about God providing what we could not do ourselves that Jesus steps in, that Jesus is the hero, that God provides what we could not do. It's Jehovah Jireh. There's a great worship song about that. That means the Lord will provide. He's my provider. God will always provide. So why did God stop Abraham? Because centuries later, God would send his one and only son up the same mountain, and he would lay him on the wood, just like Isaac was laid on the wood, on a wooden cross. And when the ultimate beloved son of God cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father paid the ultimate price by giving up what he loved most for us. Verse 15, Genesis chapter 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, this is Jesus, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, 
literally your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. That word there, offspring, means seed. It goes right back to Genesis chapter 3 when God promised Eve that one of your seed will, will come the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. God is telling him ultimately that Jesus Christ is going to come from your line, from your seed. See, here's the thing. That the traditional moralist, he believes that God has these you know, big scales of justice, right? And it's like, I just need to do more good than bad uh, to outweigh what the debt I owe to God. And the traditional moralist who believes that, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, would never go up the hill, would never go up the mountain. Because why would you sacrifice what you love most? You're like, no, 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 I'll find a different way to, to, to balance out the scales. I'm not going to give up what I want the most. I'll give more money, be a good dad. I'll earn my forgiveness a different way. A modernist who only believes in love, but not in holiness or justice, he would never go up that mountain. Because he believes God is just here to bless me and, and make me happy, wealthy, and wise. He'd say, I don't owe God anything. There's no debt to pay. God just loves me. But see, the thing is, we need both. You need hope and duty to feel a debt that you could never pay, but also to believe in a God of promise and love. And it's only on the cross that God can do both. If you don't believe in the cross and what God did on there, you will never go up the mountains that God calls you to scale for him of justice and grace. And Abraham knew that true lamb must be out there and someday would come. Maybe this morning, again, you look at the story, and you're like, okay, the preacher told me to, I need to be brave. I need to believe in a God of both love and justice. How do I do this? Do I just try really hard? Well, I think if Abraham had been there at the foot of the cross, I think he would have turned God's words back to him. Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your one and only son, whom you love so much. The same thing that God said to Abraham. I think Abraham would look at the cross and say the same thing back to God. How do you know that God loves you and values you and delights in you so much that you can rest in that and be free from slavery to circumstances and other people? It's with God's help. You have to see that Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain was a picture of the price that God the Father paid by sending his son up the hill to Calvary. That when we fix our eyes on the cross and the symbol of God's love for us, allow that to move you and to change you and to say, now I know God. Now I know how much you love me. That you were willing to give up what you loved most, your one and only son, and not withhold that from me. See, we're never going to be brave enough to follow what God calls us to do, but just by trying really hard. First, we have to look at the cross and believe in the one that Abraham points to the Lamb of God, the one and only Son who takes away the sins of the world. This week, as we head towards Easter, I want to encourage you, look at the cross. Be moved with wonder and love that a God who's totally just, who's going to right every wrong, who's going to step in and, and bring justice, is also a God of love and forgiveness and grace. And he has to be both or he's not good. And on the cross, both justice and love were poured out. And as we fix our eyes on the cross, as we see how much God loved us, it's not just about trying harder or trying to be like Abraham. It's saying, no, no, no. My strength is from Jesus, my provider, who steps in when I am incapable, when I need a hero. Jesus is the one who's there for me. And we have this message of hope. 
And for those of us who have stepped across that line of faith and said, hey, we're putting our faith and trust in Jesus, what do we do with that? Do we just take it and, and, and ponder these things? Yes, that's good. But also we share, hey, do you know how much God loves you? We take these invite cards and truly say, hey, come hear the story of a God who loves you so much that he's willing to give up everything for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter how people have wronged you, how people have harmed you, the mistakes you've made. God says, you are welcome here. I've given my son for you, and now you can just receive it. You can just have it you can, because of what I did on the cross. If we have this message of hope, why would we not share it? Friends, this, this, this is our hope and our desire. Is, is we want people to, we, we want to bless them. We want to have some good food and, and have an Easter egg hunt. And, and, and we want people to feel like they can belong here. Hey, whatever your story, hey, you are welcome here. We're glad that you're here. But ultimately, we want people to be blessed, have a sense of belonging. We want them to have a belief in Jesus because that is what changes people. It's day by day walking with Jesus, looking at his love, saying, man, you love me so, so much. That is what changes us. Religion doesn't change us. Trying really hard doesn't change us. Trying to, to, to do some kind of rules, that doesn't change us. Again, on Wednesday night, hanging out with some of these high school boys, it was so refreshing to hear them talk and just chatting with a bunch of homeschool, um, high school boys who you know, grew up in a Christian home and, and, and just had a great conversation about, hey, where are you? I don't encourage you to ask that, where are you right now with Jesus? And uh, uh, there's about three or four of these boys in the small group I was hanging out with who were like, you know, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I've been around this my whole life, but I just don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I'm like, that's good. I'm glad you're wrestling with this. But one of the boys is like, you know, I pray, and it's like, yeah, I lost my wallet, and I pray, God, help me find my wallet, and then it shows up. Is that God, or is it just, I don't know. Is God really answering my prayers? And I thought about it, like, just, man, sometimes I feel like we reduce Jesus to this genie of, like, answering our prayers, and if he doesn't answer our prayers, then we, we, we don't want to believe in him? And I said, here's the thing, guys. I said, Here, here's the truth that, that maybe you're not going to hear much. In a group this size, about a dozen high school boys, some of you are going to want to be dads, and it's not going to happen for you. Some of you are going to get married and get divorced. Some of you uh, are going to struggle with... Uh, you know, lifelong illnesses. Like, that's just the stats here. And if you only follow Jesus because of what he can answer or what he can do for you, of just because he's Jehovah Jireh, that's not going to be enough. You're going to go through hard seasons and be like, this isn't worth it. Why do we follow Jesus? Because he's the hero who shows up and he doesn't leave us. That when we go through infertility and disease and betrayal, and, and wanting to be a dad, or wanting to be married, that we're not alone in that. And to me, that's the best promise of all. And that is different than really any other religion, any other moralistic, therapeutic deism teaching that just says, hey, you know, uh, God's going to bless you, whatever, just kind of do your thing. No, no, no. Jesus is truly with us. And, and, and life may go just horribly, not the way you planned it, but you can still trust him and still love him because he died on the cross for you. It's not about what you can get from Jesus. It's about his presence in your life. And that's the thing this Easter. So we want to tell people, hey, you don't have to be alone. You can have a friend 
who's closer than a brother, who will never leave you. That when you feel alone and you're hanging out with your friends in middle school or high school or wherever, and you feel like no one understands, that Jesus understands. When you're suffering and you feel like, man, my prayers are not being answered and you don't understand, Jesus knows and he's there with you. That's why we follow him. That's why we love him. So I just want to encourage you, as we head towards Easter, would you join me in prayer? Because I know there are so many people who feel lonely, who feel lost, who feel hopeless. And if we can just show them Jesus and just say, hey, you don't have to have it all worked out. Come with us as you take a next step. Hey, we got these community groups, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Great time. Just a journey with others and say, hey, I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure. But let's do this together. Right? That, that's what this is about. Would you join me in prayer? God, thank you. Thank you for your word and, and even stories that at first glance just seem so crazy. God, I pray that we would see the, the ugly debt that we owe and that a tremendous debt requires a tremendous sacrifice and that your son Jesus paid that price on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, so that the demands of justice and love could both be satisfied. And so God, I pray right now that we would just fix our eyes on the cross, that we'd fix our eyes on you and, and how your love was poured out on that cross for us. And, and God, this week that we would just be overcome with joy as, as we get excited to celebrate the resurrection on Sunday, that the worst thing is never the last thing because Easter Sunday is coming. So God, just give us, give us a heart to see even those around us who maybe are wearing a mask, but we know they're not doing okay. And just to show them Jesus, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, the friend who's always there for us, the friend who went to the cross for us. God, thank you. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the cross and for Easter and resurrection. Be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one more song tonight uh, as, as our closer. Again, uh, we opened and we're closing with this fancy word called Hosanna. And it's in, in the New Testament. It's what the people really chanted as Jesus came in the week before he went to the cross. And it's really just lifting up the voice of Jesus saying he's our king, our creator, our God. Holy is he. So we're going to sing this song as we open and we're going to close in the same way. Um, but may you know that, that Jesus who entered uh, as, a, as a king, he loves you so much and he's never going to leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's willing to go to the cross and pay the price that you and I could not pay. And so now may your heart just be overflowing with love and thankfulness. Let's go out for singing. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Maple Grove podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thank you to everyone who gives to Mosaic Maple Grove. Your generosity allows this message to go out into the world. You can be a part of the Mosaic tribe by going to mymosaicchurch.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Grace and peace, my friends.